I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am joined today by a friend who I've admired for decades at this point, and um, it, it's so exciting to see her. Maud Newton has written for the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, the New York Times Book Review, and Oxford American. She grew up in Miami and graduated from the University of Florida with degrees in English and law. Her debut memoir is called Ancestor Trouble. Welcome, Maud. Thank you, Maris. It's so good to see your face. It's been too long. It has. Maud, I feel like there's no one in the world who hasn't thought, who am I or why am I this way? Or even better, like, why are my parents this way? And, and you did the work to try to find out. I did. Yeah, I really. So, you know, as you might imagine, having read the book over the years, a number of friends said, hey, you know, you should really write a memoir. And I said, you know, I actually am really intimately familiar with the dysfunction of my immediate family and spending, you know, whatever amount of time that would be sort of locked in the like, what seemed like a closet, you know, with the, with the you know, difficulties, we'll say, of my upbringing. <laughs> not appealing to me. But as I got older and I started sort of thinking about my parents and thinking about, you know, their parents and, you know, the, the sort of patterns that I was noticing and, you know, becoming more curious about their personalities and why they developed in the way that they did. Um, yeah, it was like a sort of like, ball of yarn that I couldn't stop unraveling, but like many balls of yarn. Yeah. I, I mean, so you have this, I, I've, I've saw someone else refer to this. I'm going to steal 
um, referred to you as a, as a detective, because that, that, that's what you're doing. You're just investigating yourself. I'm very flattered anytime someone calls me a detective because <laughs> my secret other wish to be a private investigator. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, particularly in the case of my father, sort of trying to understand, you know, as I write in the book, he really was a very stern uh, person, you know, very emotionally abusive, um, you know, but in a way that didn't really map onto the experiences of a lot of other people I knew who came from situations where their parents were abusive, you know, so he was kind of an enigma to me, even as an adult. And I, and I think he's an enigma to most people. And at times, I really feel a sort of compassion for him around that. Um, you know, and so as I got older, and I kind of thought about, you know, God, what is it like to move through life like that? And how do you become this person? Um, it just kept like sending me further and further back into my family looking for clues, I guess. Yeah. And it, one of the things that really struck me is that, yeah, we, we know about, you know, physical inheritance and even generational trauma. But what I hadn't really thought about until I read your book was about how the way we hold ourselves physically has so much to do with with our experiences and our past and uh, and our genetics. Yeah, I mean that's definitely something that I was really curious about um, as I started writing the book. I mean, you know, I talk a lot in there about my dad's mom. I physically resemble her a lot. Um, she was a, an even smaller person than I am, but she was extremely pale, you know, had these teeny tiny wrists and my, my wrists are pretty small. I'll, I'll show them to you for confirmation, <laughs> you know, and, you know, teeny, teeny, tiny ankles and just like, you know, this very small kind of anxious um, seeming person. Although when I was young, I didn't really pick up on the anxiety, just sort of her frantic energy. And I really wanted to identify myself with my mom's side. Yes. You know, my mother on that side was like a freaking badass, mm. you know, sort of hold it like it was, take no prisoners kind of a woman. And, you know, so I really wanted to be like her. And I resented the parts of myself that I saw as coming from this sort of like Mississippi Delta plantation heritage um, that, you know, just struck me as weak and sort of, you know, just really unappealing. Um, you know, and, and as I got older and I sort of saw my posture like more and more becoming like hers and I became aware like, oh wow, you know, she also like clutches things way too hard and is kind of like a little clumsy in strange ways. And, and then like sort of seeing some of that in my father, I became really curious about that. 
you know, about research into posture, um, you know, into those, those kinds of things about the body that we sort of blame ourselves for sometimes, but we can also see our running through our families. And it was really interesting to delve into that scientifically and find that we don't really have a lot of answers. Yeah. But it was really interesting to sort of ponder how recognizing these similarities between my father and myself gave me this insight into him. You know, I realized like, oh, he's actually also an anxious person. You know, whether or not he views himself that right. way, I know what that feels like. So that was a kind of one of the many sort of trippy, you know, having read the book, you know, it, it gets a little trippy in various ways. And that is, is one of them, just sort of this deep understanding suddenly, intimately of like, oh, my body comes from his body and I can sort of understand more of his experience because of that and even in terms of you described so chillingly the atmosphere at home and how it would change when you, when your father was coming home the parakeets would stop singing <laughs> and i i really thought about that clenching that you do in preparation for for whatever he's going to throw at you and how how to not do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, my mom, as you know, was the one who she, my mom is so theatrical and can be just so funny. And so she would love to tell her friends like, and then when he's coming home, you know, the parakeets stop singing and the dogs, I can't do her accent anymore. I've lived in New York too long, but you know, she would just like say this over the top thing about how the dogs would run down the hall and hide and the cats would go under the sofas. And at the time I just sort of thought like, oh yeah, ha ha ha. But in hindsight, I realized, no, she was right. You know, we, we were all terrified when he came in the door and yeah so it definitely like the, the process of unlearning that um has been long and it continues um the sort of like hyper vigilance that comes for anyone who's gone through trauma and you know i feel on the one hand i feel despite everything i went through sort of reluctant to paint myself as some sort of like survivor of immense trauma because I'm also like such a recipient of immense privilege at the same time. So it's a double-edged sword, but I can see, yeah, I mean, it gives me so much empathy for people who have also been through trauma and it's really been interesting sort of ponder how that runs through my family. Why was my grandmother like that? You know, what was that about? I, I don't really have an answer, but pondering that gave me so much more compassion for her and enabled me to sort of see positive things I could carry forward um, through her and, or from her rather. And, um, yeah, so, you know, at the same time, dipping into, as you know, I go deep, deep, deep into trying to understand genetics, epigenetics, you know, 
um, to the extent that anyone can as a lay person or to the extent that any of us really can because science is so imperfect. And it is- Sorry, you really, you really um, brought me back to sixth grade biology where I thought it had all been figured out and we knew what, how genes worked and that was, it was all set. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I remember, I mean, I'm a little older than you are, you know, by, by a number of years. And I remember like, oh, wow, we've decoded the genome and we're going to know everything. And, um, and that's not how it worked. Yeah. So looking at the interplay between um, environment and genes, you know, I think our whole culture is kind of gripped by this now you know, thinking about intergenerational trauma, you know, even those of us who come from families who aren't like mine, you know, there's usually some kind of traumatic experience that we can sort of see affected us or affected one of our parents and maybe has a legacy in us, you know, or we maybe are like, why am I so afraid of this irrational thing, um, you know? And yeah, so, and then of course, when you start looking at questions like slavery, you know, legacies for people who are descendants of those who were enslaved or descendants of Holocaust survivors, you know, descendants of the, you know, people who survived the genocide of indigenous people in this country. I mean, there's so much exploration that, you know, needs to be done around that. and. I find, you know, the idea of intergenerational trauma is very um, controversial among hard scientists. And sure. as we write about that, um, but, you know, it's, um, I just find there's sort of a human exceptionalism sort of view of it a little puzzling because we know that it happens in, in other species. Oh, that I didn't, which species? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so definitely with mice, um, there's been some research that suggests that this is possible. I think some hard scientists find problems with that data as well, but it's oh, been completely right. proven in earthworms, for example, um, you know, and for some reason there's this sense that we're special. So, you know, these kinds of changes from environment can't be passed down um, to humans. So, you know, I'm, I fall on the side of, probably does um, happen. And, you know, really, I believe it does. But, you know, I really wanted to break down that science for the reader and, you know, not sort of in a facile way, just start talking about it as though it's a reality, but just, you know, what science has shown and what isn't shown. I have to bring my personal experience into this now because as oh. a type one diabetic, there's a lot of controversy about whether trauma not causes it, but activates the disease. And reading about epigenetics made me understand, like, so you have this gene or these genes, and then maybe something happens 
And it's a combination of all these different things that lead to who I am and, and who, who we are. Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, knowing that genes aren't fate is so, it's such an opening, you know, but on the other hand, knowing that um, environment can change things can sometimes almost be another way of pushing blame onto people. You know, well, what have you done to bring this on? Yes. What, what did your family do to expose you to, you know, the thing that caused this or, or whatever sort of judgmental um, things people might bring to it. And um, yeah, but I, I, find the, I find epigenetics really interesting you know, a sort of positive opening in the sense that there are some things we can probably change a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't have type one diabetes, which is a much more serious thing than, than what I have, which is a thyroid disorder. I have Graves disease. And, but, you know, I can never sort of undo that, but I can sort of work with myself as best I can to, you know, learn to react to situations better so that I don't make it worse for myself. And I think, you know, I don't know about type one diabetes, if there's a component like that or not. Um, but you know, it's, it's tricky because you don't want to feel blamed for what you have. And you're, it's not, obviously it's not your fault that you have diabetes, but at the same time, to the extent that it maybe gives some hope around it, you know, I find it heartening. Yeah, I you I, I feel like your book gave me a, a different narrative to tell myself, and I appreciate that. Good. That's that's so good. I'm so glad. And and I love that you're so careful with every kind of research you do to weigh the consequences. Um, and particularly in, in your exploration of DNA testing, which of course has exploded in the past decade. Um, and there are so many wonderful things to take from it and then <laughs> not. Yeah, it's, um, it's really dangerous technology. You know, it is so, um, you know, expanding and wonderful for people who are able to find relatives that way. You know, a number of writers I I really admire have found their birth parents that way. Um, you know, it also potentially gives us the tools to really reconstruct some of what happened with slavery. You know, as you know, my ancestors, oof, you know, I, I started <laughs> expecting like, oh, my father was a white supremacist. And so I knew that this was in my family history, but it's so much of it. It's, you know, um, so sort of being able to potentially for people who are descended from the people my ancestors enslaved, you know, for them to maybe be able to pick up the thread, figure out who they're related to biologically, that just feels potentially so expansive. But at the same time, the like potential racist applications of this technology, 
what it can reveal about people who are related to us. Um, you know, just, yeah, I mean, I, I know I really kind of got into the weeds at points in the book about that, but it was really important to me. You know, I guess once I set sail on the book, I just knew what I wanted to do. And I just was like, you know, I'm writing this for the reader who wants to follow me to all of these different places. If anybody wants to skip a part, um, that's cool. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my thinking. I was like, you know, I'm really interested in this and I know some other people are really gonna wanna get into this DNA stuff at this level. So. Absolutely. And, and another thing that I really admire about the book, um, which is very you, is that so much of your research has to do with reading. And it's a combination of reading your friends' books and reading memoirs and novels, and then also scientific books and foundational stuff. But like, but tell me about how being a reader shaped this book. Oh my God. You know, I mean, anybody who's a serious little nerdy reader as a kid knows, I know you know, mm -hmm. how, how much that shapes your view of the world. And I think, especially when you're a kid in a situation like mine, you know, my parents were always fighting. Um, my father was really difficult um, and kind of, well, he was scary. You know, and then my mom had this like very extreme evangelical belief system and had a church in our living room and was, you know, doing exorcisms like it was it was while you're doing your math homework. That was a good detail that really stuck out. Oh, exorcisms God. and math homework. <laughs> yeah. And it was sort of like, gee, I wonder why I'm not really thriving at long division. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's such a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. I felt so much less alone sort of growing up with other people's stories. I was always really drawn to stories about family trauma. You know, my mother um, su suggested that I read East of Eden at one point when I was pretty young, maybe 13 or 14 or 15, I don't remember. Um, and she sort of, she was really fascinated by it. And I was fascinated by the similarities between this sort of completely amoral character in the book and my father. And then that was sort of, you know, this entry point to something new in books, I feel like. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I love other people's stories. I love to sort of see the similarities and differences um, between my experience and other people's. And I just, you know, I love books and, and carrying scenes and stories around with me. It's just what I do. A good example that helps us get into a different area of your book is, the idea that Alexander Chi knows so much about his the Korean side of his family because yeah. that's what the culture asks them to do is to revere your elders. And um, 
you give a, a, a face to that while talking about like, what are we doing? Why don't we care? Why? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I bring this explicitly into the book, but I was both really drawn to the sort of like spiritual and spiritual-esque creative, um, you know, exploration that I knew I wanted to do in the book and also really afraid of it, you know, particularly given, you know, this history in my family of religious fanaticism, I was sort of like, oh God, you know, where is this going to take me? Um, and yeah, I was already really reading deeply into, you know, the, the importance of ancestors to people, um, spiritually across the world and across time. Uh, when, when I read Alex's book where he talks about performing his own Jessa um, or Jessa maybe, I, I, always, I always have an odd, um, perhaps odd to a listener like tendency to pronounce things a little bit Cuban because I grew up in Miami. So sure. Alex, if you're listening, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so um, he, he performed this sort of impromptu ceremony um, with his ancestors in mind and with the idea of reaching them. He had reached this stage of frustration in his life and he was like, what do you want from me? So he wrote a letter to them and burned it. And I found that really just knowing Alex so wonderful <laughs> to imagine. I know you know him too. Um, and also just so intensely moving. Um, it felt really deeply connected to what I was working around with my ancestors. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you know, I really was interested in Western ideas about ancestors before the Enlightenment and before Christianity. So I went really deep into that. Tell me about the Maud Newton who inspired your pen name. Yes. So Maud Newton um, was someone who whenever anyone mentioned her in our family, they always said Maud Newton. No one ever said Maud. Um, she was my father's great, great aunt. And my grandmother, the one I resemble, but who I found really frustrating, was very, very determined not to ever let anyone tell any stories about her. And so that made her this figure of curiosity for me um, when I was a kid. And as I grew older, and you know, I, I write about this in the book, but there was literally a time when my grandfather told like one juicy story about her, you know, splitting up with her husband by throwing pepper in his eyes. Um, and <laughs> Um, I feel like I said that in a weird way. So I'm going to say it more slowly for your listeners. She supposedly threw pepper in her husband's eyes until he, quote, stopped coming around. 
So, (laughs) you know, that was amazing. But my grandmother being this Mississippi Delta Belle was like, literally like, look at those magnolias. (laughs) You know, like really just doing anything to deter my grandfather from continuing to talk about Maude. And unfortunately, she was successful. So anyway, um, the, uh, the point of all of this is that I ended up discovering she has her own archive um, at the University of Mississippi. She was a writer. And what she wrote was really deeply disappointing. Um, You know, she was, I had hoped she would be this sort of eccentric kindred spirit Mm -hmm. who was defying the family in the bosom of the Mississippi Delta. And to some degree she was, she became a car dealer of all things, you know, in her eighties. But um, she also was a white supremacist and you know i i was horrified to see how much what she wrote in her opinion columns for the local paper really connects to the stuff that we're seeing now you know i wasn't surprised in a sense because my father is such a white supremacist and obviously it came from somewhere But nonetheless, to see her talking about, you know, the problem with letting black people vote and, you know, all this other stuff was, it was a gut punch, but it was really important because, you know, yeah, I mean, I I sort of feel like the things we're drawn to in our families are things we need to pay attention to. And so even though I, you know, was, really upset to find this out about my self-given namesake. It also underscored, this is part of my work in the world. You know, reckoning with all of this, learning from this person I named myself after, you know, it's it's not someone you, you would choose if you had all the information, but it feels symbolically important to me anyway. Tell me a little bit more about reconciliation, which is the other part of the subtitle of this book. And it it seems like an ongoing process. Yeah, it's definitely an ongoing process. So as you know, um, I did a lot of research into ancestral practices that existed in Greece and Rome and may have existed in what we now call England and Ireland. And I was really interested in those, you know, at least as an intellectual matter, but I wasn't really interested in writing about them in what I saw as like a sort of gross anthropological way, sort of standing outside of it and reporting on like, look at what these wacky people are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I found, um, you know, over many years of hand wringing and reading and trying to figure out an entry point. um, Yeah, I I just decided to experiment with it. Um, I found some teachers who I've worked with who, you know, have various rituals that are based around the idea that 
the living family and the dead remain connected, that the wellness or the lack thereof of the dead family matters. Um, and I have had some really um, intensely meaningful personal experiences and revelations around all of that that feel very true to me. But I also believe, you know, I recognize not everybody is going to go out and try to be in touch with their dead ancestors and, you know, try to help them be, you know, um, in a higher state of being or, or what have you. But, you know, philosophically, sort of creatively, psychologically, it's a really interesting exercise to allow ourselves to imagine what our ancestors before the ones we know about, or even the ones we know about, to imagine them in a sort of different way, outside of the facts, to just sort of allow ourselves to feel our way into like, what, what does this person mean for me? Um, how can this person help me show up better in the world? Um, and that has been a sort of practical aspect of this that I think there's a lot of room for people who are not interested in explicitly spiritual stuff around this to, to really think about. Love that. Um, Maude, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, ever since I had a podcast and I knew you were writing a book. Tell me what books you'd like to recommend. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I knew you were asking, you, you gave me a, a tip off. So I've thought of a few. Um, one I really love, I'm really on the same page with the NBCC on this. I love Rebecca Donner's All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, an amazing family history, looking at her, um, her own great, great aunt, who was, you know, this resistance figure in Germany, though she was American, and she was executed by the Nazis. Amazing book. Beheaded. Um, yeah, exactly. Beheaded. Um, and I also am in complete agreement with the NBCC on Honoré Fanon Jeffers, um, The Love Songs of W.E.V. Du Bois, which also connects to family history in a lot of ways. It's an, uh, just an outstanding multi-generational novel um, in just super smart recent pleasure reads. Um, I, I really love um, Sochit's uh, Gonzalez's Olga Dies Dreaming. Um, and I apologize for slightly butchering her name. Um, but I, I absolutely love that book. And it's just so fun and so smart at the same time. I love I, that these were all on a theme. Yeah, I tried to think around it. Actually, also, I will throw in one more sort of around the spiritual stuff for anybody who might be sort of interested. Um, there's a book called Molly... Uh, a book by a writer who died recently called Molly Doma Patrice Somme. And I write about him in the book. And this book is called Of Water and the Spirit. It's a kind of, you know, argument for ritual around ancestors. I love that. Maud, thank you so much. Thank you, Maris. <laughs>
thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.